Welcome to the Old Time Radio Hour on Sid Valley Radio. This is Sid Valley Radio. This week on the Old Time Radio Hour, we'll be listening to a half-hour crime show, followed by a 30-minute drama program. So, just sit back and relax. As we revisit the truly golden age of radio. Gateway to the Orient. Rough, tough Vancouver, whose waterfront presents an ever-changing panorama of mystery and violence. A constant challenge to such specialists in crimes of the sea as Don Gray, Marine Investigator. business, marine investigation. And that means shaking hands with crime and disaster. But whenever there's low play on the waterfront, whenever there's a situation that doesn't have the honest smell of fish or lumber or grain, then it's Don Gray, the interested party's hire, to kick it around for them. Good afternoon, sis. And Mr. Garen? <laughs> That's right. I have an appointment with Mr. Gray. Yes, sir. He's expecting you. This way, please. Mr. Garen is here, sir. Oh. Please go in. Down. Down, sir. Well, thank you. This is quite a mess we have on our hands, Mr. Gray. The crew simply refused point blank to take her out. I didn't figure you'd want them to. Aren't you laying charges? As owner's agent, I advised the captain strongly against it. Our job is to get the ship on her way. You've been at sea yourself, Mr. Gray. You'll appreciate the point. Appreciate it, all right. It's a poor policy, Mr. Garon, to require a captain to overlook mutiny. Captain Cardale agrees with it in this case. The papers haven't got the full story. You see, the circumstances are unusual. Uh-huh. It wasn't outright mutiny. The men were too terrified to go on with the voyage. Terrified? Terrified. Of a ghost. Mr. Garon, superstition dies hard at sea, sure, but... When I go... Uh-uh. The trouble is, it's not only the ratings. The mates, the engineers, the captain himself are half convinced. Oh? That's why they made little resistance to the men's demand. Are they quitting, too? No. No, they'll carry on. If they can get a crew and a replacement for the second engineer. Second? He quit? He was buried at sea three days ago. He died violently in the bunkers. And according to them, by the hand of the Stanford's ghost, 
I went down with Mr. Garan to see the captain of the Stanford. The ship lay at Evans Coleman Wharf, and she was as ancient a tramp as I'd ever come across. She looked abandoned, with a starboard list leaning against the wharf like an elderly trollop. I had already learned she was carrying a load of coal to be found. Captain Cardell sat us down in his room and produced the inevitable drinks. He was a young man for command, no more than 30, and not very sure of himself. I said, Your ship's an old-timer, Captain. Still coal burning? It's still burning coal, yes. Mm-hmm. She's 42 years old. You've seen many a port in that time. Yeah. Well, if you'll tell me about this ghost, Captain... Seems very real to the crew. It sounds crazy, Mr. Gray, but oddly enough, there's something in it. Now, when I was advised you were coming, I mustered some witnesses. Uh-huh. They're coming now. Uh-huh. Come in, come in. Yes, sir. This is Mr. Gray with Mr. Garrett. Gentlemen. <clears throat> Mr. Gray is inquiring into the death of the second engineer. Well, sit down, wherever you can find room. Yes. Well, Mr. Gray... The first to hear the tappings was the cadet, Tom Wallace. It was the day after we left Comox, Vancouver Island. That's where you loaded your cargo. Yes. The tapping came from the main bunker hatch. The trimmers were still working the lower side bunkers. There could be nobody under the hatch unless you were trapped. But Tom called the third officer. Uh, go on, Mr. Dent. <clears throat> well, when I got to the hatch, I, I couldn't hear anything. We were in every weather at that time, and the tarpaulin was secured over it. I thought it must have been something loose that Wallace had heard. But I tapped on the axe with my knuckles. And sure enough, an answering tap came back. Oh, that's funny, I said. How can anyone be trapped down there? Oh, I tried again. The same thing happened. And what time of day was it? Uh, about 11 o'clock in the morning, sir. Mm-hmm. So what did you do? Well, sir, the only thing I could think of was a, a stowaway. So with the cadet, I, I knocked up the wedges and lifted the match cord. But there was nobody there. It was dark inside with the coal and all piled under the beams. But if anybody was happy to get out, he'd have been there, wouldn't he? I imagine. Unless he was nuts or a very frightened stowaway. We thought of that, Mr. Gray. We've never been able to find any evidence of a stowaway. Here's what happened next. Well, I I closed the hatch again and we didn't hear any more. So I I thought nothing more of it. But that night, it, it began again. I could hear it from the bridge. Uh, the mate heard it, too, from his bunk. Uh-huh. Well, I saw him come out on deck, so I went down. When the tapping stopped, I, I knocked again on the axe. The tapping came back. Uh, maybe the mate would like to tell you what happened there. Okay, go ahead, Chief. <clears throat> well, I, I called the standby man, and we opened the hatch. There was nothing there. I gave the standby man a torch and told him to go in and look. He refused. He was scared. Well, I went in myself, but I couldn't see anything. And that's all. Up until then, Mr. Gray, it was only puzzling. When they reported it to me in the morning, I shrugged it off. A rolling ship makes all sorts of sounds. But it continued intermittently through the second day and night. Mm. On the third day, the trimmers were working in the tween deck, uneasily, but working. They're trimming coal down to the lower bunker pocket. It was Wallace the cadet who witnessed the next incident. Go ahead, Wallace. It was at 12 noon, sir. I was just getting ready to eat when I heard a sort of strangled howl outside my port. The starboard bunker pocket hatch is there, sir. I looked through, and there was Frame, the 12 to 4 trimmer, tumbling out of the hatch. His eyes were staring out of his head, and he was choking. He was gasping, 
there's Summit down there. Summit down there. Oh, God. I rushed out, and then some of the others arrived. Uh-huh. Yes, Captain? We searched the bunkers. We couldn't find a thing. It's very dark down there, of course, and we have no electric light. We used torches and hurricane lamps in groups. We even shifted some of the coal to get into the corner, without result. There was nothing but coal and the open trimming hatches leading to the lower bunker pockets. And they were empty. But the trimmers, now flatter, refused to go down. So the second engineer went down to set an example sort of thing. The next thing we heard was a fearful scream. We rushed below. We found Mr. Bray at the bottom of the lower bunkers. He was dead. Honey, you know, he didn't just trip. There were marks showing where he'd been dragged over the loose coal. And one of his shoes was still in the tween deck, ten feet away from the trimming hatch. Mm -hmm. We found his torch, too, in the tween deck. And it hadn't been just dropped. It was smashed, as if he had thrown it with some force at something. Incidentally, he was the chief engineer's nephew. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me, uh, you, Frame, we haven't heard from you yet. What scared you down there? I don't rightly know. I don't know, sir, but suddenly, like, my lamp goes out. Then something rushes again. When I look up, all I see is terrible eyes. I didn't wait for anything else. Looks like animals on They look like devil's eyes. Hmm, I was figuring the possibility of a cougar maybe having gotten aboard at Comox. <laughs> Cougars don't play knuckles on hatchboards. I can assure you, Mr. Gray, the ship's been thoroughly searched. But nothing could get the hands down the bunkers again. We had to burn cargo from number two hole to get back here. Pity you weren't able to keep the body, Captain. It might have given us an answer. By the time we left the ship, I had something to think about, and it wasn't ghosts. Garen was sweating and said, Well, do you suppose there's anything we can do? Yeah, yeah, get another crew. We've already asked for one. There isn't a local crew will sign. The word's got around. Yeah. I'd say it's a good way to cripple competition. Fly a crew from the East Coast, then, and ask a skipper if I can sleep on his settee. It's a long time since I made a trip to Japan... Go the tugs up. My eyes. Let go the tugs. Pull ahead, sir. Pull ahead, sir. It was next day we pulled out with an East Coast crew. Some of the original crew had come back, led by the cook. The cook, the donkeyman, a couple of ABs. We dropped the pilot at William Head and cleared the Strait of Juan de Fuca by morning. And so far, nothing had happened. And then, at ten o'clock, it began. Come in. It started again, sir. The tapping. Main bunker hatch again. No. Well, Mr. Gray? Let's go down. Just a moment. I'll tap on the hatch. Well? There's a door leading from there into the pit, isn't it? Yes. 
station someone there before we open the hatch. All right. Mr. Vernon? Yes, sir. You better take the standby with you. Yes, sir. Okay. Let's knock the wedges out. Just a minute. Yes, sir. I want you to come with me and stand by the bunker between deck door. Oh, it is that tapping again, sir. Oh, no, sir. I hope you realize what disobedience means, Bailey. Oh, oh, oh you should never have come back, sir. Oh, oh, I thought maybe Vancouver would have broken the jinx. I, I, I thought maybe if it were a store away, you'd have gotten out by yes, now. Oh, I, I can't go down there, sir. All right, beat it. I'll go along myself, sir. All right. Give a hand with the hatch, Bailey. Take the other end of the hatch board. Okay, Captain. Hand me the flashlight. I'm going in. Beyond the thin light that came down from the hatch, it was as dark as the inside of a chimney. The coal was stacked up to within a couple of feet of the hatch covers and a pinnacle sloping down to deck level. And I noticed the faint glow from down below. It was a trimming hatch. In the lower bunker, 20 feet below, an almost naked trimmer was throwing coal into the stokehold. It was working in the light of a hurricane lamp. I considered whether he could have been doing the tapping. But there was no ladder at the hatch. It was designed strictly for trimming. I moved away and passed my ladder on. Far of the main hatch was a steel bulk. About the hatch, the deck ran aft on each side of the and room casing. I moved my light overhead. Nothing but beams from the underside of pocket hatches all secured. And a couple of ventilators parked from inside. I tapped the plot. There were wooden discs, a couple of feet in diameter. They were solid and fast. I moved aft. Both wings ended in solid steel bulkheads. There was only the door into the piddling, huh? I opened it. Vernon, the mate, was standing outside on the fiddly gratings. He had a crowbar in his hands. He looked a bit tortured, as if he was braced to both fight and run. We went up through the fiddly, past the galley, and out on deck. It's good to breathe the fresh air again. Went over to the hatch. I said, Might be an idea to leave the hatch open, Captain, and see what happens. In this weather, she'll be taking seas any time. The weather report isn't good. Okay. Close it down. Bailey? Yes, sir. A minute. Before you draw the tarpaulin, let's try our own tapping again. Ah, nothing doing. Okay, batten it down. Hold it now. Let's try again. I should never have taken this ship out again. I tell you to a downright... Get on with the job. Finish the wedges. you make of it, Mr. Gray? Oh, I can see what you mean, Captain. You're going to have another mutiny on your hands if this goes on, even if nobody else is killed. 
We pulled a boner in taking any of the original crew back, Captain. Frankly, I thought it was all over. When do you have inspection, Captain? Sunday morning? Yes. I'd like you to make one this morning, Captain, at 11 o'clock. Quarters, storeroom, galley, and so on. Besides, I haven't met everybody yet. He sent for the chief engineer. His name was Bray, the same as the second who died. And we started with the officer's quarters. Bray, the chief engineer, was a good-looking 40, dark complexion, but a supercilious, vain kind of a cookie. My guess was women had spoiled him. He was the kind of heel they fall for, anyhow. Seemed to suffer the round of inspection like it was a concession to a skipper's idiosyncrasy. We didn't inspect his own room. That was the skipper's concession to him. We looked in the galley. The cook and his mate were working on a pot of Irish stew and a load of sweat rag duff. And I knew it was Thursday. On a limey tramp, you can tell the day of the week by the menu. I remarked to the cook, Swallow you to come back. I don't believe much in spooks, really, sir. Spirits? Yes, in a bottle. <laughs> it was a kind of a joke, but I figured at that he wasn't enjoying it. It was the kind of joke you hear when the ship's sinking and the lifeboats are smashed. We went on through the rest of the accommodation, the crew's quarters, the cramped and gloomy places. There were the usual pin-up girls. Over a bunk here and there, a picture of a wife or a girlfriend, maybe both. The chief engineer never came into the quarters. He held back at the door. You could almost see him holding his nose. But I got what I wanted, a general plan of the ship. I took the next plan from the bridge looking aft, a bird's eye view. Abaft the bunker hatch was the galley with warship's weather plates before the doors. Then the fiddly, the engine room casing, the boat deck, the mainmast, the poop, where the men were quartered. The ship was rolling, now in a heavy sea, taking spray aboard. The canvas covers were on the ventilators. It was eight bells, noon. I went down to dinner. It was then the next thing happened. Captain, quick! There's a trimmer just sprung out of the pocket bunker hatch. He's fainting. Which side? Starboard side, sir. What's the matter, man? There's something down there. Something down there, Captain. What? What do you mean? What's down there? I don't know what it is, but it's breathing. I think this is... Did you see anything? Just a kind of shadow and eyes. Again, but... Maybe you should get the chief engineer along, Captain. Didn't see him in at dinner. Anyhow, I guess it's his department. Yes, I wonder where one of you... Oh, he's coming. What's the trouble now? The chief was in his boiler suit, a blue boiler suit, kind of dirty. He was wiping himself off with a sweat rag. At first, he seemed more amused than sinister. I asked him, no dinner today, chief? Oh, yes, when I'm ready, Mr. Gray. The engine room comes first. Having trouble? Yeah, he's keeping the stokehold supplied with coal. Now, what's the matter with you, Tolfin? We told him, and he turned back on the man. Ah, nothing but mass hysteria. Get down below and trim that coal before we have to stop the ship. Now, sir, I refuse to go down in bunkers. That's flat. Nearly all hands had gathered by this time, and their eyes and their mouths and their grim nods said there was going to be a first-class mutiny to get the ship back into port. The chief turned to the captain and shrugged. Well, captain, if you can't do anything with them, I'll have to get my engineers into the bunkers, that's all. Then you'd better do that. Until we get this thing resolved one way or another. I'll make another search of the bunkers with you first, Chief. Ready? When I've had my dinner, Mr. Gray, such as it is. We didn't find anything. The new second engineer was working down there, trimming coal from the tween deck now into the lower bunker. He had the third with him. They were working in pairs. 
Down below in the stokehold, the firemen had doubled up to trim it from there to their fires. The fourth was tending the engine. I knew they couldn't stand this for long. I decided to take a turn myself and watch change. But at 3.30, I was just dozing off. I left for the door. I bumped the skipper on the way out. In the name of heaven. Hello? In the loud bunker. I is the chief engineer. What in heaven's name was he doing down there? Believing the others for tea. The crowd was staring silently. It was Bray, the chief engineer, all right. I looked at the trimming hatch, 20 feet above us and back again. Not only battered by his fall, his throat had been cut from ear to ear. Well, Skipper, I guess that's it. I hope you're well off the coast. Off the coast? Yes, we're well off the coast. Because when the fires die out, you'll be drifting. You'll get nobody near those bunkers now, even to take her back in. I'd better radio for assistance. Coast Guard, perhaps. Navy? If necessary. But I want to take a look at Bray's room and go through his things. There's maybe a clue in the fact that the two victims were related. Let's go down. Take a look in the bunk drawer, Skipper. I'll go through his desk. Yes. There was the usual stuff. Log abstracts, requisitions, engine room catalogs, circulars, yellow with age. And then I opened a box. It contained snapshots. I riffled through them. They were all women. I said, take a look at this, Skipper. Hey. I figured him for a ladies' man, but looks as if he could have taught Solomon a thing or two. Look at this one. Yes, quite a figure. I wouldn't sneeze at her myself. This. Oh, who's this? Take a look. Yeah. Well? Does it look familiar? Well, no. Why should it look familiar? There's a name on the back. Terry Brown. With love, Terry Brown. Anybody with that name aboard? Nobody. No Browns aboard. But there is an enlarged picture of the snap aboard. Think back to our inspection. Can you remember seeing it somewhere? No. No, I must confess I can't. I can't either remember where. Captain, we're going to make another inspection. We find that picture. There's got to be a tie-in. What's that? Nobody there. No, but somebody has been. Somebody's been listening at the door. I didn't find the picture I was looking for. I knew it had been up in somebody's room, and it was no ghost that had taken it down. But there was nothing more I could do yet. The engine was still running, but the fires must have been getting low. The skipper himself was about petrified by now, especially when the tapping began again. It was eight o'clock, dark. The third mate had called us to the hatch and was sobbing with hysteria. Answer it, skipper. All right. Keep it up, skipper. Don't open the hatch. I'm going down through the fiddler. I kicked off my shoes, padded along and down the fiddly ladder. The tween deck door was open, but something creaked as I slid through. I flung the beam of my light toward the main hatchway. I had a storm, something vanished as the light hit it. Then there was a movement of coal sliding down the heat. I moved the light on the whole area of the hatches. There was nothing there. I brought it down to the deck. The beam fell on a circular wooden cover. Ventilator plug. I sent the light upward again. There was plenty of room for a man inside the vent. I moved over and looked inside. Yeah, I could stand on the cross piece and draw the plug in after him. But 
canvas cover was still in the mouth of the bed. You got that cut it way up. I was trying to figure it when some more coal slithered. A ghost of light and duck. Yeah, it's a pretty lively ghost. All I could do now was ease back towards the door and hope I didn't slide down a trimming hatch in the dark. Near the door I stood, tried to wrap my ear. But all I could hear was the tentative knocking of the skipper on the hatch. I wasn't getting any answer. Now, and then, whatever it was, it was on. I collapsed. It was touched deliberately. It lost balance. It scrambled away as I was recovering my own. And now I can see it. Nobody. Just some kind of a face with eyes glowing in the dark. I could hear it panting. My gun was in my hand. I didn't wait. I aimed between the eyes. The face disappeared. The body was hurtling toward me. sister's girl. She were orphaned in 1940. I give her everything I had. So? What happened? Well, I... The chief engineer came along. I didn't know him then. He ruined her. Ruined her? How? How? <laughs> she took sick. Father worked. She drowned herself. But she left his legs. So I watched me chance to ship with him. It... It was... Oh, go on. It was too bad his never come down first by himself. But why shouldn't I get his never tell her? Did the chief engineer know who you were? Uh, not until I killed him. Then I told him in the bunkers. <laughs> and then you had to find a picture. So oh, I... I had to be missed. <laughs> I wouldn't vote him any more, Skipper. Even if it's doing anything left for him here. He must have been mad. You figure? Don't you think you could ever get that fond of a niece, Skipper? Well, let's go. There's nothing more we can do.
Marine Investigator is a CBC Vancouver production written by Thomas Gilchrist with Doug Haskins in the title role. In tonight's supporting cast were Lee Taylor as Captain Cardale, Walter Marsh as Guerin, Alan Routon as First Officer Vernon, Stan Jones as Chief Engineer Bray, Eric Vale as the cook, Juan Root as Third Officer Dent, Strowan Robertson as Stoker Telpin, Bud Slater as Cadet Wallace, Frank Vivian as the trimmer, Flame, and Roy Brinson as Abel Seaman Bailey. Marine Investigator is directed by Raymond Whitehouse, with sound sequence by Ted Levesque and Frank Vivian. Control operator, Don Horn. Tonight's broadcast of Don Gray, Marine Investigator, concludes the present series by Thomas Gilchrist. We would like to hear from our radio audience concerning your appreciation of Don Gray with an ear to future broadcasts. For the present, we make way for the British Empire Games in this Monday time period. If you wish the return of Don Gray, Marine Investigator, please address your request to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Vancouver, B.C., and head them up, Attention, Don Gray, Marine Investigator. This is Ray Nichols, trusting that we shall hear from you. And in the meantime... So long for Don Gray, Marine Investigator. You're listening to the Old Time Radio Hour on Sid Valley Radio. It's a theater of memories, this Brownstone Theater, your own memories, perhaps. For here we present plays you may have enjoyed once upon a time. Plays that have entertained and thrilled many an audience in many a theater. Plays you will still enjoy. your seat at the Brownstone Theater now, and sitting beside you is the distinguished American drama critic and author, a knowing and charming gentleman, Clayton Hamilton. Good evening. It is always a pleasure to welcome you to the Brownstone Theater, the theater of my memories and your imagination. But tonight I feel a very special pleasure, because we are about to listen to the leading scenes of what has always been to me the most enchanting play in all the world. This is Cyrano de Bergerac, a heroic comedy by Edmond Rostand, which has been rendered magnificently into English verse by Brian Hooker. For this occasion, the members of our Brownstone Theatre Company have invited a guest star. And I have the honor to present to you my dearest friend and one of our foremost actors, Walter Hamden. In the actual theatre, Mr. Hamden has performed the part of Cyrano more than a thousand times. And now, for our Brownstone Theatre presentation of Cyrano de Bergerac. On a night in 1640, a great audience representative of all of Paris is assembled in the Royal Theatre, but the show does not go on. 
Cyrano de Bergerac, a swaggering Gascon swordsman with a monstrous nose, suddenly appeared and goaded off the stage the leading actor whom he happens to despise. In the midst of the ensuing hubbub, a disappointed busybody attempts to register a protest. Cyrano retorts. You may go now, but uh, you may go. Well, tell me why you are staring at my nose. Well, no, no, I... Uh, Does it astonish you? Well, your grace must understand. Well, is it long and soft and dangling like a trunk? I never said... Or crooked like an owl's beak? Like uh, perhaps a pimple ornaments the end of it? Oh, no. Or a fly parading up and down? Uh, what is this portent? Oh, this phenomenon. But I've been careful not to look. And why not, if you please? Why, it disgusts you then? Oh, no, not in the least. Possibly you find it just a trifle large. Oh, no, no. Small, very small. Uh, infinitesimal. Small? My nose? You pug, you knob, you buttonhead. Know that I glory in this nose of mine. For a great nose indicates a great man. The Comte de Guiche, most highly placed and influential of the enemies of Cyrano, has been looking on with disapproval. His follower, Valver, offers to take up the challenge. Observe. I myself will proceed to put him in his place. Uh, your nose. <clears throat> your nose is rather large. Rather. Oh, well. Is that all? Oh. Ah, no, young sir. You are too simple. Why, you might have said, oh, a great many things. Mon Dieu, why waste your opportunity? Uh, for example, thus. Aggressive. I sir, if that nose were mine, I'd have it amputated on the spot. Descriptive. Tis a rock, a crag, a cape, a cape, or say rather, a peninsula. Inquisitive. Uh, what is that receptacle? Arrange a case or a portfolio? Kindly. Ah, do you love the little birds so much that when they come and sing to you, you give them this to perch on? <laughs> Dramatic. When it bleeds, the Red Sea. Enterprising. What a sign for some perfumer. Lyric. Hark, the horn of Roland calls to summon Charlemagne. <laughs> Simple. Uh, when do they unveil the monument? Respectful. Sir, I recognize in you a man of parts, a man of prominence. These, my dear sir, things you might have said had you some tinge of letters or of wit to color your discourse. But wit... Not so, you never had an atom. And of letters, you need but three to write you down an act. Oh, these arrogant grand airs. A clown who, look at him, not even gloves, no ribbons, no lace, no buckles on his shoes. I carry my adornments on my soul. I do not dress up like a popinjay, but inwardly I keep my daintiness. I go caparisoned in gems unseen, trailing white plumes of freedom, garlanded with my good name. No figure of a man... But a soul clothed in shining armor, hung with deeds for decorations, twirling thus a bristling wit, and swinging at my side courage, and on the stones of this old town, making the sharp truth ring like golden spurs. But you... But I have no gloves. A pity, too. I had won the last one of an old pair and lost that. Uh, very careless of me. Some gentleman offered me an impertinence. I left it in his face. Dolt, bumpkin, fool, insolent puppy, Chavanel. Ah, yes. And I, Cyrano Savinia, Hercule de Bergerac. Buffoon. Ay, 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 ay. 
Well, what now? I must do something to relieve these cramps. Mm, this is what comes of lack of exercise. What is all this? And my sword has gone to sleep. So be it. You shall die exquisitely. Poet. Oh, yes, the poet, if you will. So while we fence, I'll make you a ballad extemporary. A ballad? Uh, yes. I'll compose one while I fight with you. And at the end of the last line, thrust hope. Will you? I will. Uh, stop. Uh, let me choose my rhymes. Uh, hmm. Now, here we go. Lightly, I toss my hat away. Languidly over my arm, let fall the cloak that covers my bright array. Then out sword, and to work with all. A Lancelot in his lady's hall. A Spartacus at the Hippodrome. I dally a while with you, dear Jackal. Then, as I end the refrain, thrust hope. Where shall I skewer my peacock? Nay, better for you to have shunned this brawl. Head in the heart, through your ribbons gay, in the belly, under your silken shawl. Hark, how the steel rings musical. Mark how my point floats, light as the foam, ready to drive you back to the wall. Then, as I end the refrain, thrust hope. Prince, pray God that is Lord of all, pardon your soul, for your time has come. Beat, pass, bring your slant. A sprawl. Then, as I end the refrain, first hope. After the duel, Cyrano and his bosom friend, Le Bray, are left alone for a moment. Cyrano says something to indicate that he might be in love. Astonished by this revelation, Le Bray says, What? Is it possible for me to love? I love. Only I know you've ever said whom I love. Think a moment. Think of me. Me, whom the plainest woman would despise. Me, with this nose of mine that marches on before me by a quarter of an hour. Whom should I love? Why, of course, it must be the woman in the world, the most beautiful. Most beautiful? In all this world. Most sweet also. Most wise. Most witty and most fair. Let her know, your cousin? Yes. Roxanne. Well, why not? If you love her, tell her so. You covered yourself with glory in her eyes this very day. My old friend, look at me and tell me how much hope remains for me with this protuberance. Oh, I have no more illusions. Now and then, but I may grow tender. Walking alone in the blue cool of evening. Through some garden, fresh with flowers after the benediction of the rain. My poor big devil of a nose inhales... April. And so I follow with my eyes where some boy with a girl upon his arm passes a patch of silver. And I feel somehow I wish I had a woman too, walking with little steps under the moon and holding my arm so and smiling. Then I dream and I forget. And then I see the shadow of my profile on the wall, my friend. A friend, I had my bitter days, knowing myself so ugly, so alone. Love is no more than chance. Speak to her, speak, man. Through my nose, she might laugh at me. Cyrano receives a message from Roxanne, his cousin and the woman he adores. She asks him to meet her. 
The eviction appointment for the following morning. Cyrano can hardly restrain himself till she arrives. When she comes, his heart leaps up to welcome her. Blessed, above all others, be the hour that you remembered to remember me and came to tell me. What? Before I can tell you, are you, I wonder, still the same big brother, almost, that you used to be when we were children, playing by the pond in the old garden down there? I remember. Every summer you came to Bergerac. In those days, you did everything I wished. Was I pretty? Oh, not too plain. Now, uh, tell me what you're going to tell me. I love Someone. Oh. someone who does not know. Oh. At least not yet. Oh. But he will know someday. Oh. A big boy who loves me, too, and is afraid of me and keeps away and never says one word. Oh. Besides, he is a soldier, too, in your own regiment. Oh. Yes, in the guards, your company, too. Oh. And such a man. He is proud, noble, young, brave, beautiful. Beautiful? What's the matter? Nothing. Well, I love him. That is all. Oh, and I never saw him anywhere except the comedy. You've never spoken? Only our eyes. Why, then, how do you know? People talk about people, and I hear things, and I know. Say he's in the guards? Yes, a new recruit. His name? Baron Christian de Neuville. But, my dear child, for all you know, the man may be a savage or a fool. Not with such eyes. You brought me here to tell me this. I do not yet quite understand, madame, the reason for your confidence. They say that in your company, it frightens me. You're all Gascon. And we pick a quarrel with any flat foot who intrudes himself, whose blood is the pure Gascon like our own. Is this what you have heard? Yes. And I thought you, whom they all fear. Oh, well. I will defend your little baron. Will you? Just for me? Because I've always been your friend. Of course. Will you be his friend? I will be his friend. Cyrano is heartbroken at finding that Roxanne loves someone other than himself. But he promises her that he will make sure that Christian shall write to her with regularity. And she leaves. Then Le Bray drops in and reproaches Cyrano for insulting men in high places who might be able to help him toward preferment. Cyrano retorts, well, What would you have me do? Seek for the patronage of some great man? Like a creeping vine on a tall tree, crawl upward where I cannot stand alone? No, thank you. Eat a toad for breakfast every morning? Make my knees callous and cultivate a supple spine? Wear out my belly groveling in the dust? No, thank you. Be the patron saint of a small group of literary souls who dine together every Tuesday? No, I thank you. Shall I find true genius only among geniuses? palpitate over little paragraphs and struggle to insinuate my name into the columns of the Mercury? No, thank you. Calculate, scheme, be afraid, love more to make a visit than a poem, seek introductions, favors, influences? No, thank you, no, I thank you. And again, I thank you. But to sing, to laugh, to dream, to walk in my own way and be alone, free, with an eye to see things as they are, a voice that means manhood. To cock my hat where I choose. And a word, a yes or no, to fight. Or right to travel any road under the sun. Under the stars. Never to make a line I have not heard in my own heart. Yet with all modesty to say, my soul be satisfied with flowers, with fruit, with weeds even. 
but gather them in the one garden you may call your own. So when I win a triumph by some chance, render no share to Caesar. In a word, I am too proud to be a parasite. I stand not high, it may be, but alone. Yes. Tell this to all the world, and then to me say very softly that she loves you not. Huh. Hush. Cyrano makes himself known to Christian, who is overjoyed at finding that Roxanne at least is interested in him. But when he hears that she expects him to write letters to her, he is dismayed because he has no gift for words. I am one of those those men who never can make love. Strange. Now, it seems I, if I gave my mind to it, uh, I might perhaps make love well. Oh, I wish I had your wit. Borrow it, then. Your beautiful young manhood. Lend me that, and we two make one hero of romance. What? Would you dare repeat to her the words I gave you day by day? You mean... I mean... Roxanne shall have no disillusionment. Come, shall we win her both together? Guided and instructed by Cyrano, Christian at first does fairly well with his courtship of Roxanne. Till in a spasm of self-confidence, he suddenly rebels. No, I say, I've had enough. Taking my words, my letters all from you. It was a game at first. Now she cares. Thanks to you. I'll speak for myself now. Hmm, undoubtedly. I'm no fool. At least I know enough to take a woman in my arms. But Christian's lovemaking goes haltingly without the aid of Cyrano. And Roxanne, on the balcony outside her room, grows colder and colder toward the stammering lover who is now shrouded in darkness in the garden below. At last, as Roxanne chides him for his awkwardness, Christian despair allows Cyrano to speak for him. Your words tonight hesitate. Why? Through the warm summer gloom, they grope in darkness toward the light of you. Let me enjoy the one moment I ever, my one chance to speak to you unseen. Unseen? Yes. Uh, yes. A night making all things dimly beautiful. One veil over us both. You see only the darkness of a long cloak in the gloom. And I, the whiteness of a summer gown. You're all light. I am all shadow. How can you know what this moment means to me? If I was ever eloquent... You were eloquent. You've never heard till now my own heart speaking. Love, I love beyond breath, beyond reason, beyond love's own power of loving. Your name is like a golden bell hung in my heart. And when I think of you... I tremble, the bell swings and rings. Roxanne, Roxanne, along my veins. Roxanne. Yes, that is love. Can you feel my soul there in the darkness? Breathe on me. Oh, but tonight, now, I dare say these things. It is too much. In my most sweet, unreasonable dreams, I have not hoped for this. It is my voice, mine, my own, that makes you tremble there in the green gloom above me. For you do tremble as a blossom among the leaves. You tremble, and I can feel all the way down along these jasmine branches, whether you will or no, the passion of you. Trembling. Yes, I do tremble, and I weep, and I love you, and I am yours. 
And you have made me that. What is death like, I wonder? I know everything else now. Thanks to the ardent wooing of Cyrano, Roxanne's heart is won, and she and Christian are secretly married. But almost immediately, the company of cadets to which both Cyrano and Christian belong is called away to fight the Spaniards. Some days later, on the eve of their first dangerous engagement, Christian seeks out Cyrano. Roxanne Cyrano. I should like to say farewell to her with my whole heart written for her to keep. I thought of that. I have written your farewell. Show me. You wish to read it? Of course. Oh, here. Look. A tear. Why, so it is. Well, this letter, as you see, I've made so pathetic that I wept while I was writing it. You wept? Oh, yes, because it is a little thing to die, but not to see her. That is terrible. Suddenly, Roxanne appears up in the field, having driven through the military lines to visit Christian. Battle begins. In the very first charge, Christian is killed. And on his body, Roxanne finds the letter which Cyrano had written as Christian's farewell to her. A letter over his heart for me. And on his letter, blood. His tears. Fourteen years have passed, and Roxana's retired to a convent where she lives in deep mourning with the farewell letter of her lover lying ever at her heart. Every Saturday, promptly at six, Cyrano visits her in the convent garden. But today is delayed. But on his way, a servant of one of his many enemies has dropped from a window a heavy log upon his head. While Roxanne sits waiting for him, Cyrano appears. His great plumed hat drawn low over his bandaged head. Very near to death, he sinks into his accustomed chair under the great tree. After 14 years late, for the first time? Yes, yes, maddening. I was detained by, well, a visitor, a most unexpected. Did you tell him to go away? For the time being, yes. I said, excuse me, this is Saturday. I have a previous engagement. One I cannot miss, even for you. Come back an hour from now. Your friend will have to wait. I shall not let you go till dark. Perhaps a little before dark. I must go. Tell me now the court news, magazine. Well, let me see. Ah. Saturday the 19th. The king fell ill after eight helpings of great marmalade. His malady was brought before the court, found guilty of high treason, whereupon his majesty revived the royal pulse is now normal. Sunday the 20th. The queen gave a grand ball at which they burned. 763 wax candles. Note. They say our troops have been victorious in Austria. 
later. You fainted. Serenor. Serenor. What is it? Oh, no, no, no. It's nothing. Truly. What? My old wound. Sometimes, you know. My poor friend. We all have our old wounds. I have mine here under this faded scrap of writing. It's hard to read now. All but the blood and the tears. His letter. Did you not promise me that someday, that someday you would let me read it? His letter? You, you wish... I do wish it uh, today. Yeah. May I open it? Open it and read. Farewell, Roxanne, because today I die. Oh, I know that it will be today, my own dearly beloved. My heart still so heavy with love I have not told. And I die without telling you. No more shall my eyes drink the sight of you like wine. Nevermore with a look that is a kiss follow the sweet grace of you. How you read it. Here's letter. I remember now the way you have of pushing back a lock of hair with one hand from your forehead. My heart cries out. Here's letter. And you read it so... Cries out and keeps crying. Farewell, my dear, my dear. In a voice? My own heart. Own my own treasure. In such a voice? My love. As I remember hearing long ago. I'm never away from you. Even now I shall not leave you. In another world, I shall be still that one who loves you, loves you beyond measure, beyond... How can you read now? It is dark. And all these 14 years you've been the old friend who came to me to be amusing. Roxanne. It was you. No, no, Roxanne, no. It was you. I swear... I understand everything now. I never loved you. Yes, you love me. No, he loved you. Even now you love me. No, no, my own dear love. I love you not. Why were you silent for so many years? All the while, every night and every day, he gave me nothing. You knew that. You knew here in this letter lying on my breast, your tears. You knew they were your tears. The blood was his. Why do you break that silence now, today? Why? Oh, because... And that faintness. Was that... Oh, no, nothing. I did not finish my gazette. Saturday, 26th. An hour or so before dinner, Monsieur de Bergerac died, foully murdered. Cyrano, what have they done to you? Struck down by the sword of a hero, let me fall. Steel in my heart and laughter on my lips. Yes, I said that once. Our fate loves a jest. Behold me ambushed, taken in the rear. My battlefield a gutter. My noble foe, a lackey with a log of wood. It seems too logical. I've missed everything. Even my death. Well, I must go. Pardon. I cannot say. I never loved one man in my life. That lost Quite. Not here. Not lying down. Let no one help me. No one. Only the tree. He's coming. I feel already shod with marble. Gloved with men. 
Let the old fellow come now. He shall find me on my feet. Sword in hand. No. I can see him there. He grins. He's looking at my nose. A skeleton. I said, you see, hopeless. Well, very well, but a man does not fight merely to win. No, no. Better to fight. No one fights in vain. Who there? Who are you? Hundred against one? I know you now. My ancient enemies. Hartford! There! They are prejudiced! Compromised! Cowardly! What's that? No. Surrender? No! Never! Never! Oh, you too. Vanity. I knew you would overthrow me in the end. No. I... Fight on! I fight on. I fight on. Yes. All my flowers you have driven away. And all my roses. Yet in spite of you, there is one crown I bear away with me. And tonight, when I enter before God, my salute shall sweep all the stars away from the blue threshold. One thing without stain, unspotted from the world. In spite of doom, mine own. And that is... What is My white plume. We have sat together in the Brownstone Theatre for this performance of scenes from Cyrano de Bergerac as Walter Hamden, the Cyrano, and Gertrude Warner as Roxanne. It has been a great joy for me to hear once more this exhilarating play by Edmond Rostand and his noble English translation by Brian Hooker, which was adapted for radio by our producer, Jack McGregor. The music was directed by Sylvan Levin. For this performance, we bring the spring season of the Brownstone Theatre to a close. But we look forward to reopening soon again. Meanwhile, we should be grateful for your comments on our plays and your suggestions for plays to be produced in the future. We are deeply grateful also for the many letters we have already received in our first season. In behalf of all of us at the Brownstone Theatre, I wish to thank you for your generous support. And so... Until the Brownstone Theatre returns to the air, I bid you all good night. Clayton Hamilton was your host for the Brownstone Theatre Productions, which came to you from New York. The Old Time Radio Hour will be back next Sunday, at 4 o'clock. We hope you can join us, here on Sid Valley Radio.